Well, do please open your Bibles with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. And as you're turning there, let me bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia, as well as the Blue Ridge Presbytery. You know, I've heard a lot about this congregation over the years, and we're very fortunate to be friends with uh, three of your pastors, two previous and, and obviously one current. I've known Dr. David Hall for a number of years and have benefited immensely from his ministry through the Reformation Worship Conference down outside of Atlanta, and I am very close friends with Dr. Duncan Rankin and his wife Shirley. They live about an hour from us. We work very closely together in our presbytery and at the Institute, and so we're, he's delighted to know that uh, we're here visiting with you all this weekend. And of course, Dr. Wilburn, I've known him for the past several years with common connections we've had through the seminary, and we've used his wonderful material on the diaconate for our own deacon training uh, over the years as well. So uh, what a rich legacy of the word, of the ministry of the word y'all have had here at this congregation. And so we're so glad to be visiting with you and worshiping with you this weekend. Well, as we turn our attention now to Luke's gospel, you know something of the context, I trust. Uh, Luke is recording Mary's firsthand account of these events. Luke has interviewed Mary, uh, among others, as he's recording this accurate record of the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. He's sending it to Theophilus, who desires an orderly account of these things. You see all of that in the opening verses of Luke chapter 1. And so far, the angel Gabriel has announced this uh, miraculous pregnancy to Mary, and Mary has journeyed to spend some time with her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth was so full of joy that she burst out in an exclamation of blessing upon Mary and her child, John, the baby inside Elizabeth. He was so full of joy that he leapt in his mother's womb. And now we see, as we come to our text this morning, that Mary, there in Elizabeth's home that day, she is so full of joy that she bursts into song, which we will read just now. Let's turn now to God's holy word. God's holy word, Luke 1, beginning at verse 46, and we'll read through verse 56. This is the holy and inerrant and inspired word of God. Hear it. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, and he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. And he's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Would you pray with me again, friends? Our Father, this is your word, and we need it. Indeed, we do not live by bread alone, but we live by every word which proceeds from your mouth. Many of us here today, I suspect, need joy, real gospel joy, not mere superficial happiness, but rather joy and hope which does not disappoint. And so as we study this passage, we ask that you would grant us the Holy Spirit's illumination and grant us insight and understanding this day. Amen. Well, friends, one of the reasons I love this time of year is because of the songs we get to sing, some of the hymns of the Incarnation, some of the Christmas carols in particular, like the one we sang earlier this morning, O Come, All Ye Faithful. 
Now, the church's tradition of sacred music across the centuries has always given special attention in our liturgies and our worship and some of the, the language, of course, of our sung praise. It's given some attention to the first coming of Christ. Indeed, as you know, some of the most theologically robust and biblically profound hymns that we get to sing, ones which echo some of the language of the creeds of the church, are some of these incarnation hymns, these Christmas carols. Right? God of God, light of light. We sang that just a few moments ago. Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. Very God, begotten, not created. Come, let us adore him. That language comes straight out of the Nicene Creed. It's absolutely lovely. Indeed, the tradition of joyous Christmas hymnody may, in fact, it may, in fact, scholars are, are, so, are still debated and divided on this, it may, in fact, find its roots in the opening chapters of Luke's Gospel with things like the song of Zechariah and the song of the angels and the song of Simeon. And one of the things that I love most about Luke's gospel and his writing is how much Luke uses song as a vehicle, as sung praise, as a vehicle for explaining the significance of the coming of our Lord Jesus. And the very first song that he sets forth for us in his gospel, the very first, if we can use this term loosely, the very first Christmas carol, if you like, is the Magnificat, Mary's song. Mary is singing out her joy to God, and at the same time, she's telling us the significance, the the meaning of the coming of the child whom she carries. As many of you know, all of our sung praise, any of the hymns that we sing, any of the psalms that we sing, they always have at least two elements to it. Whenever we sing in worship, we are singing to the Lord, rendering our praise and adoration to him, and we are teaching and admonishing one another. There's always those two dimensions that we have in our sung praise. There's a a vertical and there's a horizontal aspect, if you like, whenever we're singing in worship. That's what scripture teaches, of course. Ephesians 5.19 says that in our sung praise, we are addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And then it also says that we are singing and making melody to the Lord in our hearts. There's both those dimensions. Or Colossians 3.16, we are teaching and admonishing one another. There's that horizontal aspect. We're teaching and admonishing in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. There's the vertical dimension. Both are going on at the same time. Whenever Christians sing in worship, we're giving the adoration of our glorious God and we're edifying, we're doing the edification of one another. Now, this is true of all Christian praise, of course, and it's certainly true of Mary's song here. She is singing praises to God, to her Lord, because of what he has done in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as she sings, and she's teaching us. She's teaching the Lord's people. And what is she teaching? Well, look at those two opening verses for a moment, verses 46 and 47. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now again, remember... Again, there's some, there's some divided opinion on this amongst the scholarship, but in all likelihood, this is a teenage girl, Mary. She's an expectant mother. And yet, in her current situation, she is not at all the focus of her own sense of gladness. Her joy that she expresses is not centered on herself. Mary is teaching us that true joy, deep and lasting joy, is to refuse any glory for self so that all glory might be God's. My soul, she says, magnifies the Lord. That's quite a word, magnify. One man pointed me in the direction of John Piper, who gives a wonderful definition on this particular word. Magnify, says Piper, has two distinct meanings. 
You can magnify in terms of what you might do like a telescope, or you can magnify in terms like what you might do with a microscope. Like a microscope, you make something tiny look much bigger than it is. And so even a microscopic dust mite can look like a monster under a microscope. But when you magnify something rather like a telescope, you make something unimaginably great look like what it really is. With the Hubble Space Telescope, pinprick galaxies in the sky are revealed for the billion star giants that they are. Magnifying God, he says, like that is worship. Close quote. Well, if we can borrow Piper's analogy there, Mary is engaged in what we might call telescopic worship. From this passage, she's taking something that is far off, perhaps difficult to pinpoint, and she's bringing it, zeroing in, painting the picture all the more clearly so we can see him exactly as he is in his character and in his dealings with men. From this passage, there's all kinds of things for us to see. It's a beautiful passage. But there's three themes in her song particularly that I'd like for us to think about this morning that teach us about God and about what he has done for her and, of course, by extension, all of his people. Three things for us to see. First of all, in verses 48 and 49, she tells us what God has seen, what God has seen, that he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And then in verses 50 through 53, we see what God has done. We see God's activity. Now, the work of his arm, the language there. And then finally, what God has said. We see that in verses 54 and 55. What God has said, his promise to our father, Abraham. So what God has seen, what God has done, and what God has said. Let's think through those three things together for a few moments this morning. First of all, what God sees. What God sees. Look at verse 48. Mary says that she magnifies the Lord. Her soul rejoices in God, her Savior. For, here's her reason. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. God has seen, and he sees Mary. He looks upon her and has noted her humble estate. It's been said that there are two kinds of people. that There are those who absolutely love the limelight and those who absolutely abhor the limelight. Uh, it may be the classic extrovert versus introvert comparison. I don't know. And, you know, when I thought about this analogy in the past, you know, when our kids were younger, I would often have used my oldest son, Benjamin, uh, at this point in order to make an embarrassing example of him. But as he's gotten older, he's gotten a little more shy. And so I think I might have to change the analogy and talk about Gabe, our second born. Uh, he is an absolute ham. And you may not know that because we're visiting and he's in an unfamiliar environment. But if you see him on his home turf, you would know that this boy is an absolute ham. He knows when the camera is on him. He knows when the group of people are talking about him and when folks are watching him. And he'll scrunch up his face and he'll make the most absurd kinds of smiles and he'll put an absolute show on and an absolute performance for you if you let him. If he were allowed, if it were permissible, he would have no qualms whatsoever about marching down this aisle, standing in front of the podium and making some sort of declaration to you about Winnie the Pooh or Dino Trucks or any other kind of animated cartoon nonsense that you might have to listen to him pontificate about. The child is an absolute performer and he thrives off of public attention and he thrives on the limelight. For others of you, however, the very thought of public speaking, to have to get up in front of a a crowd of people up into a pulpit, up into a podium. Even the very thought of that might send you into convulsions and dry heaves. The thought of having to walk up to the front of this room and take your place with every eye in the room following you, following your every move, fixing 
undivided attention upon you, you would want nothing more than for a trap door to open underneath this pulpit and to swallow you whole. In fact, statistics and studies have shown that the number one fear, of course, amongst at least North Americans is death. The number two biggest fear, apparently, is public speaking. But whether you love it or whether you hate it, the focus of public attention being upon you, the truth is, at our core, there is this intrinsic human desire. There is this this need, this longing at the heart of our being to be known, to be really seen, to be noticed and truly known. And that is what has happened for Mary. In the coming of Jesus Christ, God has looked upon her humble estate. All generations, she says, will call me blessed. Not because Mary thinks herself worthy of being made much of, but rather because he who is mighty has done great things for me. He's done it. I haven't done it, she acknowledges. He has intervened in the coming of Jesus Christ, and his intervention has satisfied my need to be looked upon and noticed and known. And with that human longing to be noticed and truly known, the fact is some of us can barely stand to look at ourselves, if we're truly honest. That's what sin does, brothers and sisters, isn't it? Sin does to us and to our existence. Our sin and our misery, our shame, makes us want to do what our first parents did all the way back in the garden. You remember Adam and Eve? After they sinned against the Lord and, and had eaten of the tree, they heard him coming and they hid themselves because they were naked. Genesis says, they, and they were ashamed or afraid, depending on your translation. That's how we feel before the gaze of Almighty God, before the watching world even, before our peers We want to run and to hide, ashamed of our exposure and how we stand in the estimation of others. If they see me as I really am, they're not going to be able to stand me any more than I can stand me. But with the coming of Jesus, we no longer see a shameful hiding, a fleeing on the part of Mary, do we? The Mighty One has done great things for her, and holy is his name. She didn't do it. God did it. And what this means, brothers and sisters, the truth that Mary is teaching us, the truth that Luke is recording for all time, is that because of Jesus, it is possible for shameful sinners like me and like you to no longer need to run and to hide, that there's refuge to be found. As one man put it like this, the Lord Jesus covers your nakedness and your shame with the robes of his own perfect righteousness. He made coverings like Adam and Eve would never have imagined. Coverings that you may stand near in his sight, not excluded from him, but near. God has looked upon you in your humble estate in the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees you, all of it. He knows you, and in his Son, he does not turn away from you. He turns toward you and pursues you so that now by his Holy Spirit of grace, so now for all those who trust in Christ, even if no one else really looks, even if no one else really notices, Now in Jesus Christ you are and may know assuredly that you have been seen and known and beloved, welcomed and accepted. Close quote. Yes, in Jesus Christ this is true of all of you, dear brothers and sisters. As Zephaniah says, even delighted over with singing and rejoicing. That is your status in him, child of God. So that's the first thing for us to see from this text. What God sees as he looks upon the lowly maiden and looks upon all of his children, what God sees. But then secondly, what God does. Look with me in verses 50 through 53, what God does. Did you notice 
that while Mary begins her song of praise with, with regard to herself, right, it's, a, it's a personal testimony of God's goodness toward her and his, his dealings with her, yet the focus of her song does not remain there, does it? She quickly expands the scope, uh, the subject of which she is meditating. In other words, the grace of God that she propounds and the grace of God which she extols and celebrates, it isn't for her alone or her merely She says his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown the strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted, notice this language, exalted those of humble estate. That's the same language she used with regard to herself in the earlier verses. And now this time, in this section of her song, she recapitulates this truth. It is true, what God does in his grace and mercy, it's true for all those upon whom the Lord shows his grace and his favor. It's not true for just me, it's true for all of them. Here's how Mary understands the meaning of the coming of her child, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. His arrival is the mercy of God for all who fear him from generation to generation. In the birth of this frail baby, this child, the strength of the arm of Almighty God is being displayed. And when God displays his strong arm, it means judgment on the proud and blessing on the humble have finally come. That's what comes around when God displays his mighty arm. You see, Mary is dealing with reality here. If we can put it rather bluntly, friends, God will intervene in your life in one of two ways. Or he will intervene in judgment. He will either intervene in wrath or in mercy, in deliverance or in condemnation. Those are the only two options before us. The Lord will intervene in our lives in one of these two ways. You see that in the passage. Both of these realities are right here for us. Right? The strong arm of God is revealed. And it, it, as it does so, it's either bringing judgment or it's bringing grace. Right? Verse 53, the rich he has sent away empty. Verse 52, he's brought down the mighty from their thrones. Verse 51, he has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Christmas is a lovely time. There's the carols and the the gatherings and the get-togethers and the warm thoughts and the exchanging of gifts and the, the pondering of the mystery of the incarnation and the revealing of God's grace to us sinners. It is a lovely time in so many ways. And yet at the same time, Words and reality of judgment are not foreign to the tales of the nativity, if we can put it that way. God is not indifferent to our sin, brothers and sisters. He bears the strength of his arm in judgment on those who live for themselves. That's what the scripture means by by the rich when it uses it in the pejorative as it does here in this passage. The rich, those who exploit, the, the hoarders of goodwill, not merely those who possess means of great finance, but rather those who deal wickedly and mercilessly with those who ought to be shown mercy from them. And so there's a solemn warning for us to hear. God will deal with our wickedness. He will send these rich away empty. But the flip side is also true, brothers and sisters. There's marvelously good news. His mercy, verse 50, is for those who fear him. He exalts those of humble estate, verse 52. He fills the hungry with good things, verse 53. When when scripture speaks in these ways, it often speaks in a manner referring to things beyond mere food and mere drink and and mere financial poverty or or financial destitution. 
put, put another way, Scripture often speaks poetically about two kinds of people. Those who are spiritually arrogant and spiritually self-satisfied, those who think they need nothing from God, those who are self-made and self-sufficient people on the one hand, versus those who know themselves to be beggars in need of God's mercy. The hungry, as scripture puts it here, are those who are craving the grace, who know their neediness, who know their helplessness, and they are craving and desperate for the saving help of Almighty God. And Mary sings of the fact that the God who deals with sin in his wrath, on the one hand, he loves to deal in his grace with sinners seeking mercy. He must deal with sin in his wrath, but he loves to deal with sinners with his mercy. Interestingly, did you see that as Mary speaks of the blessings of this coming Messiah, as she's, as she's extolling these glorious things that are about to take place, she speaks in the past tense. Because in reality, in time, as, as Mary is there pondering these things, from her vantage point, all of these things that she speaks about are things that Jesus has yet to do. He, he will do them, of course, but, but from Mary's vantage point, in that moment, he had not done them yet. The child had not even been born, much less grown up to perform his earthly ministry, to die and rise again. Well, Mary is simply a good Jewish girl who knows her scriptures, and she's offering her song in the same style as the songs of scripture are quite often recorded. Right? Mary's song, as we read through it here, is steeped in Old Testament scripture. In these ten verses or so, she either quotes or alludes to passages from Genesis, from Deuteronomy, from 1 Samuel, from 2 Samuel, from Job, from the Psalms, from Isaiah, Ezekiel, Malik, excuse me, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. One commentator says that this is a virtual tour of Old Testament expectations about what God will do for his believing people. It's the same thing that we encounter when we read passages like Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. You know those verses. Paul says, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. It's past tense, right? In eternity, he purposed to save some, to save many, and make them like Jesus. And those whom he predestined, verse 8, he also called. Right? When you became a Christian, as in, in, in your past, you, you heard the good news and God was calling you to himself in doing so. And then he says, Paul says, that those whom he called, he also justified right? in their past. They, they came to know the Lord. They came to trust him savingly. They were counted as righteous in God's sight. They were justified in, in their past experience. There was a, a moment in time, a temporal moment, when they stood now justified before their Lord. And then Paul goes on marvelously, those whom he justified, these he also glorified. Glorified, past tense. Yet glorification is in the future, isn't it, Paul? We're we're not yet glorified. We're We're not yet in heaven. Jesus hasn't come back yet. We're not yet in this state, in the new heavens and new earth, this future glorification, saved to sin no more. That day is still coming. So why does Paul use a past tense? Well, Paul uses the past tense for that verbiage much the same way that Mary does here and for much the same reason as Mary does here in Luke chapter 1. She speaks as if it had already come into the world, as if it had already happened. The poor are fed, the proud condemned, the humble exalted. It's a past tense because now that Jesus has come, this baby, not even fully formed, a zygote in her womb, he's come The future is sure and certain. The promises of God are as sure and certain as if they were a past fact of already occurred history. 
though they are yet to come from her vantage point, they are so utterly guaranteed and utterly trustworthy that Paul and Mary are bold enough to speak as though it has already taken place. So sure and so unshakable are the promises of Almighty God. For some of us, I suspect that this holiday season will be harder than the year before. I don't know your congregation. I've only just met a few of you. I don't know you as well as I know my own congregation, but I suspect that many of you have very similar experiences and very similar things you're going through as much of the folks do back home in Roanoke. Those of you who have lost a parent or a spouse are still grieving that death. For others of us, our financial situation is uncertain or precarious. For others, our health has taken a poor turn, and there are certain words and there are certain diseases that are creeping up in the back of our minds that we would care not to entertain. There are young families or young couples who have been trying and trying and trying and trying to have a family of their own, and the test has come back negative once again, and they are devastated. We received word just over the weekend of a young couple in our church who had finally, at long last, been able to conceive a child and have just lost that child and are devastated. And for many of them, and I suspect perhaps many of you, the dark specter of death looms over some of our families. For those of us, some of you traveling home for the holidays, it's not a sweet experience. You're not exactly longing to go spend time with those extended relatives and family because our families are a wreck of bitterness and mistrust is absolutely abounding. (laughs) Good tidings and season of cheer, you say. If such is your condition, brothers and sisters in Christ, cast your soul again on the words of this passage because the Magnificat reminds us that because of Mary's boy, Because of Jesus Christ, the one who was born of a virgin, the one who was tempted in every way, yet without sin, the one who was obedient to God's holy law, the one crucified and dead and buried in the third day, rose again from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God and from thence is coming to judge the living and the dead. Because of Jesus and what he has done, these promised future blessings, that a day is coming when suffering is over, when sickness and sighing and sorrow are no more, where every tear is at last wiped away, when righteousness reigns and when wickedness is finally done away with and ended, when wrongs are at last righted, when an upside-down, sin-sick world has at last been turned right-side up again. All of it, all of it is as certain, all of it is as sure and guaranteed as one man said, the promises of God are as sure as yesterday's news. Friend, brother, sister, Because the tomb is empty, and because the throne is occupied, because Jesus died and rose and now reigns, you can press on, beloved. You can press on, however dark and however hard and sore these days may be for you. Christ has come, and you and I can press on in the sure and certain confidence that all these things shall come to be. So that's what God sees. That's secondly what God does, and then finally... If we look at verses 54 and 55, what God says, what God says. He has helped, Mary says, his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary is is, is remembering and she's reminding us that the first Christmas is the fulfillment of God's ancient promise, if we can use that language. You see, for for teenage Mary, this promise, from her vantage point, this promise is already 2,000 years old. It's 4,000 years old now from our vantage point. The promise made to Abraham that in his seed, in his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. 
The Apostle Paul in Galatians 3 shows us how Jesus is the child of Abraham to whom the promise pointed and in whom blessing would come to the nations. In other words, the birth of Jesus Christ, in that birth of Jesus Christ, God was keeping a millennia-old promise at last. The long-awaited-for promise has finally come to be. No wonder Mary sings. No wonder she exults in such joy. No wonder the church has been singing about it for some 2,000 years now. The child in Mary's womb is the focal point of human history, the one in whom all the promises of God, for Mary and for all his people everywhere, is, were, finally coming true. The seed of the woman, from Genesis 3, 15. The seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. The seed of Abraham, in whom the nations would be blessed. The seed of David, who would reign on his throne forever, of whose kingdom there will be no end. The root of Jesse, King of kings, the wonderful counselor, prince of peace, everlasting father, the servant of the Lord. He's coming, and Mary knows it. And God had promised a coming Savior, and he's here. He's here at last. You see what she's saying? There are no promises of his upon which you cannot utterly depend. There are no precepts in Holy Scripture upon which it is unsafe to rest your life. If I can put that in a more straightforward and less clunky way, God's word is sure and entirely dependable and you can stake your soul and your everything upon it, brothers and sisters. Because of Jesus Christ, you may know that God keeps his promises. He kept his promises to Abraham and his promises to Israel and his promises to Mary and he keeps his promises to you to be a God to you and to your children and to your children's children. He is a perfect savior of sinners and all who trust his promises find that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how shall he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Friends, in all that is bright and cheerful this season, for those of you who may be in such a place, and all that is dark and grim and mournful this season, for those of you who may be in such a place, won't you join in Mary's song And know that he is a God who is worthy of all your trust, who is worthy of all your glory, and is worthy of all your delight. Trust him. Trust him. He is worthy, and he is absolutely worth it. May the Lord be pleased to bless the ministry of his word to all of our hearts this day. Would you join me in prayer, friends? Our Father, we do bless you for your word. And we confess that we often find ourselves wondering. We often find ourselves sometimes even sinfully doubting your reliability. We confess to you that circumstances shake our faith and at times grief overwhelms us. Suffering and sorrow makes our fears fester. And we pray today that you would help us to look where Mary looked, to trust the promises in which Mary trusted. Regardless of our circumstances, as we cling to Christ, would you strengthen our weak faith? And would you send us from this place rejoicing with with just some measure of the joy that Mary felt that day. Seal your word to our hearts this day, we pray. May we, like her, treasure it up and ponder these things. Seal it to us for your glory and for our everlasting good. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.